Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode number 83, which is going to be a shifting of the gears a bit. It's going to be another From the Archives episode for a very special reason. Because this week's From the Archives episode will feature Terry Funk, whom we just lost last week, one of the all-time great performers of professional wrestling, if not the greatest of all time, which I'll be talking about in just a little bit. This episode is going to be a little bit different from the usual ones. I'll be sharing with you an interview that I did with Terry Funk about three and a half years ago for my book, Blood and Fire, the biography of the Sheik. And I'll also be sharing some stories and recollections of my brief but memorable interactions with Terry over the years and my comments and thoughts on his legacy, his accomplishments, his greatness, and his importance to the wrestling business. Of course, this episode was originally supposed to be a conversation with Kenny McIntosh of Inside the Ropes, That episode has been bumped. It will be next week's episode, episode 84. But this week, we're paying tribute to the one and only Terry Funk. Before we do that, a couple of things that I wanted to get to, as I do here every week. One being to let you know, first of all, that the newest issue of Inside the Ropes, speaking of which, the newest issue of Inside the Ropes is now available on InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. It's Issue number 36, and it has Jay Uso on the cover. And inside, you will find my article on the greatest babyface turns of all time. You might remember a few months ago, I did an article on the greatest heel turns of all time. And this time, I covered the greatest face turns. So I hope you enjoy that. Check it out. Episode, uh, I'm sorry, issue number 36, Jay Uso on the cover, InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. Also want to make mention that I do still have some autographed copies of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, as well as Superheroes, the history of a pop culture phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro, my newest book. If you're interested in picking up a signed copy, reach out to me at brianrsolomon at yahoo.com or... On Twitter or Instagram at Brian R. Solomon, you will find me, or through the Facebook group for Shut Up and Wrestle, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. But enough about that. Let us talk about the man that we have all been thinking about, that we've all been cherishing, that we've all been remembering over the past week. One of the greatest, and certainly also at the same time, one of the most beloved professional wrestlers of all time, and the two of those don't always go together, as we know. But in the case of Terry Funk, they did most certainly go together, as I witnessed firsthand. But first, let's talk about why it is that we love and remember Terry Funk so much. In Terry Funk, you are really talking about somebody who, and I know this hyperbole gets used a lot, may have been the greatest performer of all time in professional wrestling, or at least, at least in the conversation. And I know that gets thrown around a lot. I understand that. And it's one of those things that's impossible to define. How do you define greatest of all time? How do you define what that means, especially in different eras? Wrestling has changed so much. Different skill sets, talking, working, the look, whatever you want to say, 
it's very hard to define what you even mean when you say the greatest of all time. And I'm one of those people. I can't really fully define it or put my finger on it. But as I said, even though I can't necessarily define what it means to be the greatest of all time, I do know in my gut, I just know in my gut that it very well may have been Terry Funk in the sense that every skill set, every part of the wrestler's skill set, everything that makes you a great performer. I'm I'm not talking about necessarily greatest draw, biggest star. I know there have been bigger stars in wrestling than Terry Funk. I understand that. I mean, as a performer, if we look at pro wrestling as an entertainment, as an art form, as a performance, I don't think it gets any better than Terry Funk. He could do it all, whatever was required of him. He made you believe, as we all know. He made you believe in what he was doing and his commitment and his character. I I wouldn't even call it a character. It was like a part of him, as it is with many of the great ones. And in an interview, the interview I'm going to play with you in a few minutes, he talked about how he had a quote where he said, the great ones are who they are. And he says, the Sheik was the Sheik. Luthez was Luthez. And now I can safely add to that statement that Terry Funk was Terry Funk. And you're talking about a career here, and this is part of what makes it so incredible, that spanned half a century and at least a solid 40 years of pretty much being full-time wrestling. And we all know there were those moments over the years, and it became a running joke, where Terry would announce his retirement. I don't even know how many times that happened. It was a running gag. I know it happened in the 80s. It happened in the 90s. It happened in the 2000s. And we always knew that he would be back, you know, and he pretty much had packed it in by the mid 2000s, but he would do occasional shots here and there. And as most recently as 2017 on one of those big time wrestling shows, the same organization that brought Ricky Steamboat back this year, they also brought Terry back in 2017. So you're talking about a career that starts in 1965 and you want to talk about reinvention. I think that's the thing that stands with me the most about Terry Funk is the fact that he reinvented himself over and over again. He adapted himself. He changed with the times. He changed with the business. When so many of his contemporaries and peers, as great as they were, they would fade into the past. They would sometimes maybe be stuck in the past or of their own time. That never happened to Terry Funk. This is a man who, you know, when he broke into the business, his contemporaries, people breaking in, were people like Harley Race, people like Dusty Rhodes. He was from a classic generation of professional wrestlers, superstar Billy Graham, people like that were breaking into the business at the time that he was. And yet for some reason, more than I would say almost any of them, Terry Funk always seemed to be a part of the current landscape of pro wrestling. Yes, he was a legend, but he also was vital. And it's fascinating to me that there's different fans from different eras of his career who may not even fully know what all of his accomplishments were. So let's say you were a fan in the 90s, right? of Terry Funk when he had reinvented himself as the hardcore icon. That's how the world or the world of wrestling thought of him. Not just a legend, not just an emeritus star in ECW, but a cornerstone of the company, a pillar, if you will, of ECW, right up there with Tommy Dreamer, Sabu, Cactus Jack, Taz, all those guys. Terry Funk was in that group. And yet 20 years before that, he had been the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, and for a significant length of time. I think that there were a lot of fans in that 90s ECW era who had no clue about that. And that's the interesting thing about him. You know, 10 years into his professional career, he becomes the heavyweight champion of the world, and it's literally just him getting warmed up, just getting started. You know how that cliche, I'm just getting warmed up, I'm just getting started. Most of the time, it's disingenuous, right? Because it usually comes 
at the end of a career or at the high point of a career. But with Terry Funk, it wasn't even the high point. It was just the beginning, that 70s era of Terry Funk. You know, then we get to the 80s after the Amarillo territory goes down and he's creating legacies, legends in Memphis. Okay, the empty arena match, the feuds with Jerry Lawler, the feuds in Florida with Dusty Rhodes, the promos that are just as good as any match that he ever had, the intensity in those promos. Like I always said, the empty arena match, very often when people come to me and say, what's the greatest thing you ever saw in wrestling? My opinion changes from time to time. But typically speaking, it's the empty arena match. That's my answer as something that just gripped me and never let go. The matches that he had in the 70s in Japan with his brother Dory against people like the Sheik and Abdullah the Butcher in all Japan for Giant Baba. I encourage you to seek those out. Some of the most visceral things you will ever witness in wrestling. He was a part of the WWF's national expansion in the 80s, wrestling Hulk Hogan. A few years later, he'd be in WCW wrestling Ric Flair. For that title, for the WCW or the NWA world title in that era. Then, as we said, he'd reinvent himself in ECW. He'd reinvent himself in FMW in Japan on the forefront of the deathmatch, the birth of the deathmatch. This is a guy who started wrestling when Lyndon Johnson was the president. And here he is having barbed wire deathmatches in Japan while, you know, Bill Clinton is the president, just to give you some perspective. So if you don't know a lot about Terry Funk, first of all, I doubt it if you're listening to this, but if you don't and you want to find out more, look up these things, look up the things that I'm talking about. His match against Harley Race in Toronto in 1977 when he loses the world title, one of the best matches you'll ever see. For that matter, even his 1975 match in Miami when he wins it from Jack Briscoe, the promos following the match, him and Briscoe, you watch things like that. And it's like the old timers say, you feel like you are watching a sport. That's how convincing these men were. That's how great Terry Funk was. He could do it all. Now, I had some interactions with Terry over the years. I was fortunate enough to have at the time that I worked for WWE, I was there from 2000 to 2007. And when I started, he was in uh, WCW. Actually, it was the dying days of WCW. He was doing his whole hardcore champion run right up to the bitter end of that company. But I remember at some point, I don't know what the, uh, I don't remember what the circumstances were, but they had invited Terry to an episode of Monday Night Raw that they were shooting at the Thomas and Max Center in Las Vegas. And maybe somebody listening to this will remember. I don't remember what he was doing there. It was maybe somewhere around 2004 or five. But I remember standing at the elevator, waiting to go down into the bowels of the arena from, from the street level. I look over to my right, and Terry Funk is standing there. Terry Funk is standing there, looking at the elevator, just like me, waiting for the elevator. And in the most unassuming way, as if he were just a normal human being, he reaches his hand out. And I'm going to do my my Terry Funk voice, which sounds a lot, a little bit too much, maybe like Hank Hill. He goes, hey, I'm Terry. Just like that. Like as if I didn't already know who he was, right? Humility. I shook his hand. I introduced myself. We got in the elevator. And this man, this legend, just struck up a conversation with me. Now, listen, I'm here to tell you that doesn't always happen, okay? I've been around a lot of wrestlers. I've been around a lot of legends. That's not always how they act around you. He was the most down-to-earth person you could imagine. I remember him once he found out that I worked for the company and that I worked for the magazines and that I was part of the office, so to speak. He really let his guard down, and he just started to talk to me about the WWE, about Vince McMahon giving his perspective on Monday Night Raw as a TV show and why it was so successful. Like, I remember what I remember one thing he said to me. He said, you know, Monday Night Raw, Brian, it's like Bonanza 
I think that's how Vince keeps the show so fresh. Bonanza was on TV a long time, and they kept changing the characters. That's how they kept it fresh. You bring in new characters, you phase out old characters. Now, that's advice that I think the creative team at WWE could probably listen to today. But what uh, the point I'm trying to make is that he was enjoying just giving his thoughts on the business, on the company, to somebody who really was a nobody, you know? We rode the elevator, we got down into the arena, and I remember the doors opened, and he was looking for where he needed to be, and standing right there, a few feet away, in some kind of conversation with somebody, was Dusty Rhodes. Now, Dusty Rhodes, at that time, had started on as a member of the creative team of WWE. This is before NXT. He was really part of, I guess, what we used to call the booking committee. And as I'm walking and talking with Terry, we walk over to Dusty Rhodes. Now, here I am. Here I am, 30-year-old, schlubby, WWE magazine writer, standing in between Terry Funk and Dusty Rhodes as they greet each other, as they embrace each other warmly for the first time in, I don't know how many years. I don't, who knows when it was? Maybe it was in the WCW years, I guess. But it seemed like it had certainly been a while before these classic rivals and colleagues had seen each other. And I got to be there to witness this. Maybe it sounds like nothing, but to me, it was everything. And I remember an exchange that has always stayed with me. And I've repeated this story a lot because I found it very funny. And I remember Dusty talking to Terry. And he had to excuse himself to go to the men's room. And he said something to the effect like, um, Terry, I'll be right back. I just need to use the men's room. It won't take very long. And then without missing a beat, Terry turns around and goes, I'll believe that when I see it, Dream. I'll believe that when I see it. And it was one of those moments where I sit there and I go, once again, nobody is witnessing this but me. Nobody is seeing Terry Funk criticizing the bowel movements of Dusty Rhodes. But here I am listening, watching it unfold right in front of me. The the mundane everyday experiences that I would have at this strange and bizarre and wonderful job that I enjoyed for seven years. So I had that experience with Terry Funk and I never forgot it. And I never really kept in touch with him at that point, but years later, I was able to reconnect with him, and that will bring me to the interview that I'm going to be sharing with you in a moment. I was able to reconnect with him for the book that I was working on, Blood and Fire, my biography of the Sheik. Now, I have to say, of all the people that I interviewed for that book, Terry Funk had to be the biggest name person that was in there, the person who most was an equal of the Sheik, who was a peer of the Sheik. Because as we know, from that far back, a lot of those guys are gone. And of course, now Terry himself is gone as well. But Terry was the only person, he and Flying Fred Curry, they were the only two people who I would say were peers of the Sheik, who were main eventers with the Sheik that I spoke to for that book. And of course, Terry without a doubt in my mind, the biggest star that I interviewed. And that was a very important interview for me, and I was able to get it to happen. Thanks, actually, to Lanny Poffo. Lanny Poffo was the first interview that I did for Blood and Fire, and he pointed me in the direction of Terry Funk, who I hadn't seen or spoken to in probably close to 15 years. And I was nervous. I didn't know what to expect. This was late 2019. Now, I didn't know what to expect. I know that he had been a little infirm by that point and that he was approaching his late 70s at that time. And um, actually, what you'll hear in the interview when I play it is, yes, the Terry Funk you will hear here is not the robust and powerful Terry Funk that you maybe are used to hearing. This is certainly the voice of an older man, a man 
coming towards the end of his time. And what I also didn't know at the time was that he had been maybe struggling with the very beginnings of the dementia that would eventually grow and that he would continue to struggle with in the remaining few years that he had left. And I, uh, when I, when I did the interview, I was not expecting that. And so when we got to talking, I, I quickly discovered that, you know, this maybe wasn't the Terry Funk of old, but this was still somebody with such a spark of life with so much to say, and still with a great memory for the old days. He was very gracious with his time. We talked for a little over a half hour. He answered every question that I had. He was very thoughtful. He was very introspective. And you're going to hear that here. Now, one thing I will say, of course, to prepare you, most of this interview is Terry talking about the Sheik and talking about the relationship of his family to the Sheik over the years, his father. And some of the material is stuff that appeared in Blood and Fire. Some of it isn't. And towards the end, you'll hear him also comment on other topics. And I let him talk about whatever he wanted to talk about. So even though it was brief, he talks about his late wife who had passed away, Vicky Ann. He talks about Hulk Hogan and WWE. He talks about his legacy a little bit. And uh, I, I felt honored, really, to just have the opportunity to hear him share these thoughts with me, whatever they may be. And I'm proud and glad now to be able to share them with you. So take a listen to this interview that I did with Terry Funk in November of 2019. And at the end of it, I will have a little bit more to say about that conversation and some of my later dealings with Terry Funk, including how he was honored by Pro Wrestling Illustrated with the Stanley Weston Lifetime Achievement Award. So take a listen to this. The audio, uh, again, as with a lot of these legend interviews, not perfect as Terry was on a cell phone, but once again, well worth your time and attention. Ladies and gentlemen, my interview with Terry Funk. Okay, Terry, can you hear me okay? Great, great. So, uh, like I was saying before, I'm working on a book right now on the Sheik, a biography. And so I wanted to talk to you because I know that um, you worked with him uh, over the years, and I was hoping you might uh, be able to talk a little about it, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, well, I, when I was looking at the Sheik, uh, his, the matches that he had, I noticed that over the years he actually worked a lot um, in the Amarillo Territory. Um, yes, he did. I wanted to ask how that came about and, and why it was that he that he had a, a connection to working for your family. Well, he had a connection with my father, I'm sure, you know. And uh, the one thing about it was, was he was a tremendous box office attraction and uh, that's why he would come in to Amarillo and be automatic seller right in, in all of the towns that he went to every one of them and uh, he had this magnetism about him that was absolutely you know it was I don't know if it was a character, if it was his actions in the ring, or what it was, but he had a magnetism that attracted people and paying customers. And uh, everyone loved to, loved to go to the arena whenever he was on the card, hoped that he uh, got the shit knocked out of him. <laughs> But uh, that seldom happened. 
Right. I mean, he, he usually won. He very rarely seemed to get what the people were hoping would happen. That's exactly right. And uh, he was just a great in-ring attraction, you know. And uh tell you the truth is he had a little or no fear of, of anybody, you know. Right. And, and what was it like? We had some wrestlers to uh, people in attendance. And what was it like to actually work with him in the ring? Wonderful, because he uh, he was an automatic attraction, and it was a wonderful payday. Yeah. When you got through wrestling, that's why you like wrestling, because you made more money <laughs> right, than with anybody else. Sure. You know, I watched him come, you know, he would go to territories and they, to pop a territory. Right. That was whenever you go ahead and bring in a wrestler that had so much charisma, he would immediately pop it. And there was very few people in the world that could pop a territory. But he was one of them. And could do that. Immediately. Yeah, just just because of the attraction that he brought and the star power that he had and I guess just how he made people And what was it? What was it? It wasn't his height. <laughs> it wasn't his weight. What was it? What did he have? Well, he, yes, he was the sheik, but you have to have something more than that. You have to have charisma and uh, talent, and that's exactly what he had a combination of, was charisma, talent, and, uh, and no fear. I truly mean that. Yeah. He would... Uh, Go to the extent that the fans wanted to kill him. <laughs> and he would go out through them. You know. Yeah, he, he probably had more fans try to attack him than, than maybe any other wrestler. Well, they would try, but they, they'd come from behind. <laughs> <laughs> they'd better. <laughs> <laughs> now, and he, I mean... I've seen him make, seen him make men's out of a lot of people. Yes. Put a lot of fear into the crowd's eyes. And I mean that. And, and he also was really good at protecting his persona. I don't think that anybody ever protected and, and kind of became their, their gimmick as much as he did, where he was always, he was always the sheik. He was the sheik. That's what you have to understand. But the great ones are who they are. Right. You know. And did you get to Tess. know him? Did you get to know Tess him? Tess was Lou Tess. The Sheik was the Sheik. Paul Orndorff was Paul Orndorff for sure. I picked him out of the blue, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. After Thez and the Sheik. I mean, no offense to Orndorff, but... Yeah, that's, <laughs> no, but that's, that's just an example of... Uh, you know, right. the guys that uh, produced in the ring and produced money. And did you get to you know, know him personally? Did I ever go in the ring with him? No, well, I know you did, but no, I asked if you if you got to know him personally. Uh, honestly and seriously, I wasn't sure that I wanted to know him. <laughs> Why is that? Well, because of who you, I mean, honestly and seriously, there was no one that lived as Jimmy more than he did. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm serious about that. No, I believe you. You know, is, uh, who knows what he could have done? You know, was he, was he the most vicious man in the country or was he the most docile? I don't know, but he struck fear 
like an Andre the Giant. so much that you guys wound up becoming the good guys. Yeah, that's exactly right. But, you know, I, mean, I, I was... How did I wrestle over there? I wrestled as Terry Funk. Yeah. And the people like me anyhow. You know, they love me over there. I know. <laughs> and, uh... But in there with a chic and Abby and Abby. <laughs> he was quite the performer. To be with a sheik, I think Abby would uh, try to be at the, at the greater level than a sheik, mm. and he couldn't quite make it. But Abby was one of all the of the heels too. Yeah, they were both. You know, I'm not. I'm not underselling him either. Two greatest heels in the country at that time. And they both kind of, uh, the Sheik and Abby and, and also you and other people, you guys kind of created what later on they would call hardcore wrestling. I, I, you know, I think that uh, actually the name and uh, I think that we, I'm not going to say I did it. I'm not going to do that. I think that we incorporated all of that into our agenda up there in Philadelphia. Yes. And I think that I was a large contributor to it. Was I the one that did everything? You can't do everything by yourself. You've got to have a companion or two. Of course. The way that the Sheik wrestled, where he, you know, I mean, he, he wasn't really known for putting on holds and things like that. He was kind of known for having those wild and bloody matches that, that didn't usually last very long. Do you think that was part of the reason for his appeal, because he was so different and unpredictable? Well, I think, uh, you know what I think his appeal was? What? When he came out of the dressing room, he scared everybody shitless. <laughs> That'll do it, right? Well, it will. Doggone sure will. And um, li li you also, I think you also... Including me! <laughs> 
Well, uh, that's something. So if he could scare you, then he's got to be a scary guy. Because you also well, scared a lot of fans, too. He was. Um, now, later on, in the, towards the end of his career, um, I, he was in Japan wrestling for FMW, and I think you were there, too. Did you... Did you see him during those years when he was kind of winding down with, with Sabu? You bet I did. He wasn't winding down. <laughs> you know, there was a guy that was two, probably between 200 and 210. I'm just guessing. Yeah, and I think he was only about 5'9". Right? Do you think I'm right on that? Yeah, I, I think you are because... Also, uh, he was only about 5'9 or 10, I think. He was not a huge guy. Yeah, and he scared the hell out of everybody. Yeah. It, it's funny because I talk to people about him, and a lot of people talk about how he was a big man, and I and that's actually not true. I think it was because he had no, that persona. No, I know that he was he, in the less than 220 era. Yeah, I think he made people think he was bigger than he was just because he was so frightening. Yeah. <laughs> he damn sure was. <laughs> he scared the shit out of me every time I got in the ring with him. And I mean that. Yeah. Didn't know what the hell a goofy bastard was going to do. You know. Well, I, I. And people say that uh, wrestling is not real. Well, somebody forgot to tell him. <laughs> but then. That violence wasn't real. That wrestling. He didn't know a wrestling. <laughs> right. Really... But he knew that goddamn violence. Well, I've seen the, the tag team matches with you and, and your brother uh, wrestling against him. And especially, you know, your brother, Dory. I can't think of a wrestler with a more opposite style to the Sheik. So it was it was weird for me seeing them wrestling each other because he's, you know, much more scientific. <laughs> I was, uh, he was weird for anybody to get in the ring with. <laughs> but that's, that was what, that's what made him the draw. Yeah. That's because you didn't know what the hell he was going to do, you know. You know, and I, I've seen guys, and, you know, guys, because I saw him a lot down here, guys that would actually be afraid of him at that time because he was he would appear and he would disappear down here he would come for two days you know Thursday in Amarillo Wednesday in Lubbock or a Sunday and a Monday you know yeah and he would appear and he would disappear you know and he would do that in different towns that we had you know and the guys themselves were afraid of him because they didn't know him, you know. Yeah. And he just had that, you know, they they weren't afraid of him, literally afraid of him, but they respected him out of, out of wondering what the hell this guy is nuts, you know. <laughs> and he... he he played that persona better than anybody. He really did. And I don't even know if, and, and I don't even know if it was the persona. <laughs> he might have been that goddamn nuts for a long time. Yeah, he, he was the most, uh, I, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he played it 24-7 like nobody else did. Yeah. And that was during a time when it, when really people were much more protective of their personas than they are now and, and even and even he still took the cake. Yeah, he, he was on top of the cake. <laughs> he was the candle up here, I'll tell you that. <laughs> he was uh, you know they don't have anything that can approach him. No, definitely you know, not. Anymore. Not anymore. No. If they had somebody that could have if uh Who's that? Is Dustin Dustin Rhodes? Yeah. If they had the Sheik up here with them right now, they would uh, they would kick the shit out of Vince in a short period of time. Oh yeah, you're talking about all elite wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. 
Boy, they, they anybody could use someone like the Sheik, I bet. <laughs> and uh, did you know anything? Yeah, where did he come from? I, I know he must have come from. He had to be an Arab, I <laughs> Well, I, I know he, he really... Uh, his... I don't know shit about his family or anything. <laughs> but the way he acted, he goddamn sure had to be an Arab. <laughs> Nobody can act like him. Well, his family really and was I'm from. Right on that shit. Yeah. Well, his family really was from Syria. That was true. They were from Syria. Yeah, I I think he. Hell, I don't know where he is from. I think he was. He could have been from. Goddamn Phoenix. <laughs> well, I, I'm pretty sure he was. Born... I, wouldn't, I wouldn't give a shit. <laughs> I would have still believed he was an Arab from Phoenix. Well, he, he was an Arab from Michigan, but uh, his family was from Syria. Yeah, um, did you, I believe that. I believe. Well, I know that for sure. And he did speak uh, Arabic. He did really speak it. Although I think half the time when he was making noises and things, I think it was just a lot of gibberish. Yeah, he you know. Was, and did you know uh, anything? Did you know anything about his? Relationship with Sabu uh, was were they close? I I couldn't tell you that. That's really the main. Sabu's, uh, is Sabu really his uh, son? He's his his nephew. He's his sister's son. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I I tried to reach out to him, but unfortunately, he 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 wouldn't. Talk unless I paid him, which I can't do. <laughs> How much did he want? Oh, uh, we didn't even get that far with it, because unfortunately, my my publisher, you know, said that they don't pay well, for it. Well, Sabu's nuts too, you know. <laughs> he really is. Yeah, I've heard that. I saw him do so much stuff. God only knows how he's walking. Yeah, I don't know how you're walking. Well, I. On two legs, thank goodness. <laughs> oh, and, and, and by the way, I, I should have said this at the beginning, but I just wanted to offer condolences on, on the, the passing of your wife. I'm so sorry to hear Man, that. Man, it was, I don't even want to, it's just terrible. I loved her so much. Yeah, that, that is a terrible she thing. She was a wonderful, wonderful person. You know, it's what I loved about him the most, the Sheik. What I loved about him the most. What was it? Well, I loved him because whenever I went in there and wrestling, well, I loved wrestling, so I knew I was going to make the biggest payday that I had in quite a while. Because mm. he was a bona fide super attraction. Hell, he drew more people in his day than Elvis Presley. And that's no bullshit. I believe it. Yeah, and I'd like to be quoted on that. You will be. Because that's the damn truth. I love going in the ring with him. He was nuts and he was crazy. But you couldn't get any better money than that. Yeah, he he was always on top. So you were taking your life. <laughs> yeah, they got damn fire and shit. <laughs> you know, who knew what he was gonna throw? It? Did he ever throw fire at you? Oh yeah, he threw it at me a few times. And uh, hell, I don't know. It was it was pretty amazing. I, my hair, my hair. My hair sure did smoke out a little bit. <laughs> Smoked out a lot. Did you lose your... in my hair. <laughs> you had to watch that goddamn hair. Whenever he, he threw that fire. Did you lose your eyebrows when he would do that? <laughs> I didn't lose my eyebrows. <laughs> but I lost my goddamn hair. 
That's the truth. Did he really burn your hair? Oh, hell yes. Oh, man. Yes. I don't know. He burned a, he burned a lot of guys' hair. Yeah. He threw the fire at him. I'm, a, I'm amazed. <laughs> but you know, as back then, as wrestling was wrestling. Yes, you it know. Was. Yes, it was. And uh, nobody proclaimed the bullshit. It was real. And he was a big part of that, and so were you. Great era. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I, I love learning as much about. I don't think anybody it. understood it completely, but it was great. We passed through it. Yeah. You know, and I can remember as a kid, you know, as everyone protected the business. Right. And I can remember my father, you know, as being in a restaurant. My mom and dad were sitting at one table, and when brother and I were sitting at another table. And this guy come up to me and he said to me, he said, uh, come on, you can tell me that all of this wrestling is bullshit. You know? <laughs> and I was about 10 years old at the time. Of all people, he asked me. Or I was the wrong one for, to ask because my father got up and beat the living shit out of him. And he didn't make another comment about wrestling <laughs> <laughs> on his way to the hospital. <laughs> well, that was how they protected it, right? That was that was how they protected it. Crazy, crazy world. I, mean, I loved it. I loved it then. Well, it was it was a great yeah. time. You know, people used to ask me all the time, what do you do, you ride with your opponent? And I said, well, whenever you go to these little towns, if you make $25, you better be, you better be able to pay for the gas. <laughs> <laughs> that was the truth, too. I've been to a few of those towns. Yeah. Everybody should have to go. Paul Kogan should have to go. He went. He went. And I mean that. Yeah. Paul Kogan, he went to the... He uh, put his share in in Florida. Yeah. And some other places. He put his time in. And, uh, what was his name? Belay. Yeah, Terry Belaya. Yeah, Terry Belaya. He put his time in. Yeah, sure, in the southeast and Florida and Memphis and all that before he made it really big. You know, you just can't go down the road and say, you know, or, or be a promotion. Say, I'm bringing that guy in because he's going to be a superstar. For one thing is you've got to allow him to be a superstar. And a lot of people don't realize that. That the promotion has a lot, a lot to do with it. And they had a lot to do with Terry Boy being a superstar, but believe me, he had the credentials to be one. Sure. Sure. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes... He had to have the credentials. And he had the credentials, but he had to have the opportunity. And they gave it to him. They sure did. And he ran with it. He sure did. He, uh, I, and he sure did. I think that, uh, you know, in the in, in the 80s there, I think Vince needed him and he needed Vince pretty equally. I think they kind of were equal partners there. I don't think either one would have been able to do it without the other one. I don't... Uh, I, I believe that Terry was uh, even... Uh, greater part of that and probably will never be known. You know, Vince gave him the opportunity, yes, but uh, he caught the football. He didn't drop it in trouble. Right. 
He was the, he was the perfect choice for it. Yes, he was. Yeah, and uh, and and you spent a little time there too, didn't you? During that period, uh, you you came in for for a little while as well. I think it was one night. I kicked my ass off. <laughs> well, I think you're selling yourself short there a little bit, but I don't think no, I don't think they kicked me. I think they they gave me my my one day notice for <laughs> one night. I don't think the sheik would have fit in very well there either. I don't think that they would have even thought about that boy. <laughs> they wouldn't know he what to do never, with him. He would have never sniffed an opportunity up there. <laughs> well, Terry, th thanks for thanks for giving me so much about the Sheik, and uh, I didn't um, I didn't know what to expect. And, and when I spoke to Lanny a few days ago, and he said that I should give you a call, and he gave me your number, and you know, I, I'm really glad that, that you were available to talk. Well, it's, it's all the truth. And I appreciate the truth. Thank you. Okay, you take care. All right, you too, you too. Th thanks again. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Well, I was better than Lanny, wasn't I? <laughs> much better, much better. <laughs> Don't tell him that. <laughs> okay, I won't tell Lanny. <laughs> All right, I'll let you go. Thank you, Terry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was my November 2019 interview with Terry Funk for the book Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic. I cherish that recording, and I'm glad to have a chance, opportunity, this week to share it with all of you. I hope you appreciate it, warts and all. As I said, maybe not the Terry Funk we all remember, but Terry was still there, and he still had things to say, and he was still happy to talk, and I was damn well happy to listen. And after that, we continued to periodically keep in touch. I remember at the end of the interview, after the recording was over, he said to me, that I could call him anytime, and the, the best part is that he meant it. I could tell that he really meant it. He was at that time at home. He had not yet been put into assisted living, but I know that was coming. And I remember, as you could hear in there, but I remember he was very sad at the loss of his wife, which was very uh, recent at that time. And I just felt bad for him kind of living by himself in that house at that age. I was glad that he got the care that he needed, but I remember now in the process of writing the book, the next thing that happened was, as I also in my duties as a writer and editor for Pro Wrestling Illustrated, we were putting together our awards at the end of 2021, about a year later, maybe close to two years later, we were deciding who was going to get the Stanley Weston Award. Now, for those that don't know, the Stanley Weston Award is PWI's version of a Lifetime Achievement Award. And it has a very select and special list of people it's been bestowed upon. And as they were, we all were trying to brainstorm and who should get it, it really was a no-brainer to me. I looked over the list of people who had gotten it, and I didn't see Terry Funk's name on that list. And I thought to myself, literally, there is not a single human being on the face of this planet living and breathing who has not received this, who is more deserving of this than Terry Funk. I made my case, and I'm grateful to PWI Editor-in-Chief Kevin McIlvaney and the rest of the staff for agreeing with me that this was something that needed to happen. He needed to be recognized. It was important to me also because he was still with us. Some of those awards have been giving out, given out posthumously, but Terry was still with us, and I wanted him to get this award in his lifetime and understand how valued he was by all of us. And getting that to him is easily one of, if not the greatest accomplishments of my career. One of the things that I am the most proud of is that, that, that I could at least play a part in making that happen. And I remember, you know, it was an interesting story. I had been trying to figure out how we were going to get it to him, because by that point he was in assisted living. 
We had to find a way to get it there. And so I had spoken to Seth Turner of the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame because they had inducted Terry into their Hall of Fame the year before, and they had gotten an award to him for that. And I talked to them about how they accomplished it, and I managed to pull it off the same way. They put me in touch with Manny Fernandez, who I've also had as a guest on this show, and actually this is how Manny and I first got to know each other. But Manny Fernandez was a longtime friend and admirer of Terry. Terry was one of those people that helped to break him into the business. He was somebody that was regularly visiting him at the assisted living center. And he agreed to bring the plaque, to bring the award to Terry on behalf of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. So I worked out all the details with Manny. He drove out there. I think it was something like a five-hour drive or something to get to Amarillo, to get to where Terry was and bring him the plaque. And there's a photo that they took together, which again is another item that I cherish. I've shared it online. I'll share it again. But it's a photo of Manny officially bestowing this plaque to, as you can see, a very happy, a very pleased, a very proud Terry Funk. And getting to see that, actually getting to see that happen made it all the better because it really made me feel like everything that we had done to recognize this man was worth it. And I remember my last interaction with him, and then I'll sum it up, but my last interaction with him was not long after he received that award because the book was coming out, Blood and Fire. Blood and Fire, I think, came out about a month after we got him that award. And I wanted to get him a copy of the book. So I gave him a call. I asked him how he was doing and just I, I made reference to the Stanley Weston Award and I explained the whole process and you know I extended my congratulations to him and he thanked me you know he knew the part that I had played in making that happen and he was grateful and he thanked me and I remember he I, I needed to send him the book and I, I wanted his address. And, you know, I've had this happen with other relatives of mine who had wound up in assisted living of some kind where they'll always think of it as a temporary measure, you know, and, and he said to me, don't mail it to me here, mail it to me at my home address. He insisted and he gave me the home address. And I remember thinking, well, of course, yes, I'll do this. But in my head, I'm thinking, I don't know if he's going to be going back to that home address. And I hope that this book reaches him. So, of course, I was pleased later on to learn, I guess, that at some point he had returned home, or at least that's my understanding, before he passed. I I don't know for sure if that book ever made its way into his hands, but I hope that it did because he was one of the people that made it as great as it was. He had some of the best quotes in there and the best memories in there. But what I want to say, too, is, you know, I, I hung up the phone with him after that conversation. And he called me back later that day just to talk, uh, which is something I have never had happen in all my years, almost 30 years of interviewing wrestlers. He called me back just to talk. He shared stories with me. He shared memories. He made jokes to me. He talked about his career. I'm not ashamed to say that as I was talking to him, and it was for quite a long time, I actually took a screenshot of my phone screen with his name and, and with the timestamp of how long we've been talking, just so I'd always have that memory to remind me of that special conversation we had, which turned out to be our last conversation. And I could tell at that time that the dementia was getting worse. And there were a couple of times where he would repeat stories that he told me just a few minutes before. But let me tell you something. I was happy to listen as many times as he wanted to tell me those stories. I was honored to be at least telephonically in the presence of Terry Funk. And he thanked me again. And we left off on friendly terms. He, he, he closed, as he often did on his phone calls, telling me to stay out of jail. That would usually be his sign off on a phone call. And on that particular occasion, it turned out to be the last time that we would speak. But uh, of course, as with all of you that have been, you know, kind of hearing hearing the news last week and dealing with it in the days since, um, it's quite a blow. It's quite a blow to the wrestling business. 
we know there comes a time when the Piper comes to call for all of us, even someone like Terry Funk that we think is going to somehow be here forever, right? It comes for all of us, but boy, does it hurt sometimes. And some of these are really hard. And in losing Terry Funk, I really feel, as I've said, that we have lost one of the greatest of all time, if not the greatest, a master psychologist, one of the greatest performers and wrestling minds that the business has ever known and has ever produced. So check out his stuff if you haven't. If if you've seen it all before, watch it again, because we're never going to see the like of him again. So take it in and enjoy it. Terry Funk, what a guy. Well, I'm glad that I could share these memories. I'm glad I could share this recording and this interview with you. I never knew if it was ever going to be totally shared, you know, or if it was just going to remain a book interview. So I'm glad to have a chance to have a reason to share it with you. This has been a, a different kind of episode of Shut Up and Wrestle. I hope that you enjoyed it and appreciated it. Next week's episode, episode 84, we'll be getting back to normal again. We'll have Kenny McIntosh on, as stated earlier, as our guest. And we've got future guests coming up on Shut Up and Wrestle, people I've been talking about. Megan Baker Kelly, the daughter of Ox Baker, will be here. Wrestling humorist and longtime fan and Arcadian Vanguard superstar Scott Cornish will be here. Robert Bledsoe, former WWF magazine writer, will be on the way, as well as Jamie Hemmings of Slam Wrestling. Just some of the guests I am working on for future editions of Shut Up and Wrestle. So please do keep listening. You can find us on our website, suawpod.com. You can also find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please do join the Facebook group as well, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. As far as some other things that I work on, I will point you in the direction of the Wrestling News, which last week featured a long-form obituary of Terry Funk. Every morning, the Arcadian Vanguard brings to you the Wrestling News. And you can find it at thewrestlingnews.com or on the YouTube page for Arcadian Vanguard. Please do give it a listen. As far as my books, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, and my newest book on superheroes, you can find them at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books. Of course, those will be non-autographed. If you want the autographed variety, reach out to me. The magazines that I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can get at pwi-online.com. Inside the Ropes Magazine, you can get at InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. If you're looking for me on social media, you will find me on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You'll find me on Facebook. My author page on there is Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author webpage on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that just like old soldiers, old cowboys never die. They just fade away. So long, wrestling fans. As I walked out in the streets of Laredo, as I walked out in Laredo one day, I spied a poor cowboy wrapped up in white linen, wrapped up in white linen as cold as the clay. I see by your outfit that you are a cowboy. These words he did say as I boldly stepped by. Come sit down beside me and hear my sad story. I was shot in the breast and I know I must die. Oh, beat the drum slowly and play the fight slowly and play the dead march as you carry me along. Take me to the green valley and lay the sod o'er me. For I'm a young cowboy and I have done wrong. Let sixteen bold gamblers come handle my coffin. Let sixteen brave cowboys come sing me a song. 
take me out to the graveyard and lay the sod o'er me, for I'm a poor cowboy and I know I done wrong. Comrade, although he's dumb. 